All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Galatians 2, 14 through 21, which is the second half of Paul's snapshot here, dealing with this incident that happened in Antioch between he and Peter. And in verse 14 through 21, we get exactly what Paul said to Peter, or at least a summary of it, that really Paul uses to set up so many other things he's going to talk about in the letter. So in some ways, this paragraph is like the theological springboard for the rest of Galatians. And so we need to hear it carefully and listen to it closely to make sure we understand exactly what's going on. So just to review, uh, Peter had come to Antioch, used to eat with Gentiles, and when some guys from the Jerusalem church showed up, in whatever way they managed to do it, they persuaded Peter that it was inappropriate for him to be eating with Gentiles. He quit eating, began to hold himself aloof from the Gentiles, And that led the rest of the Jewish Christians there in Antioch to do the same thing. Paul's very upset by this. This is not an issue of preference for Paul. This is a gospel issue for Paul. So listen to what verse 14 says. It says, When I saw, this is Paul speaking, When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. This is not a preference issue. This is not like, oh yeah, eat with the Gentiles if you don't want to. Uh, Eat with them when you feel like it. This is a gospel issue at this point for Paul. Why is it a gospel issue? Because the gospel intends to make one new family of God in the Messiah. And that one family of God in the Messiah is going to be composed of Jews and Gentiles. And if you will not eat with them, then effectively you are communicating that they are not part of the family, or at least they're second-class citizens in the family, and that goes directly against the gospel. This is not just Paul's opinion. This is the gospel that he preaches, that he received from Jesus, as he argued in the end of chapter 1. It's also what the prophets predicted, that when Messiah came and the great renewal happened, that the Gentiles would come into the family as well. It's what was ultimately promised to Abraham way back at the beginning, that through Abraham and his descendants, the entire earth would be blessed, right? Like, The blessing of Abraham was for the whole world, not just for the Jews. So Paul looks at this and says, this is a gospel issue. This has to be addressed. And so verse 14, when he saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Paul says, I said to Cephas in the presence of everybody, Peter is so influential Peter is so powerful, and his uh, decision to not eat with the Gentiles has had such a devastating in- effect on the whole church that, that Paul figures a public confrontation is necessary. So he confronts Peter in the presence of everybody, and this is what he says. If you, Peter, the you is singular, if you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you now compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's the basic question that sets up what comes next. And so Paul looks at Peter and basically says, Peter, you're a Jew, and yet you managed to live like Gentiles, because Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. He had been eating their, presumably eating their food, eating from the same vessels as them. He could live like a Gentile. Um, and, and so Peter had um, been able to uh, free himself from Jewish scruples. He had been able to free himself from Jewish tradition. He'd even built, presumably been able to free himself from some of the Old Testament requirements and of the Torah to fellowship with and enter into partnership with the Gentiles and live like them and not like the Jews. How is it then, Paul asked, that now you compel the Gentiles 
to live like Jews. By withdrawing and by uh, no longer eating, you're effectively communicating to the Gentiles that if they want to be in fellowship with you, then they're going to have to become Jews. And that phrase at the end of that question, to live like Jews, is actually one word in Greek, and that one word basically means to become a Jew. And so it's not just to adopt a few Jewish standards. What Paul is saying is, by your behavior, Peter, you are effectively saying to the Gentiles that in order to be good enough, in order to really be part of the people of God, in order to be fellow, to fellowship with you and the other Jews who are part of the family, they've got to become Jews. And that's the gospel problem. The gospel is for all people, both Jew and Gentile, as Jews and Gentiles. Now, what happens in verses 15 and following then, here in Galatians chapter 2, Paul summarizes what he said to Peter on this occasion, and he does so in such a way that, as I mentioned at the beginning, it serves as sort of a springboard for a lot of the rest of the letter. So, verse 15, Paul says, We are Jews by nature, meaning we are Jews by birth, and not Sinners from among the Gentiles. Put quotes around that in in your mind in verse 15. Not sinners from among the Gentiles. That is a standard, typical Jewish way of describing the Gentiles. All right? So, Peter is, or Paul is using uh, standard Jewish kind of nomenclature for how to refer to the Gentiles. So, we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He goes on in verse 16 to say, Nevertheless, We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. A couple grammatical notes on this phrase that help clarify what Paul is actually saying. Verse 16 in the translation I'm reading from, which is the New American Standard, begins with the word nevertheless. And I think that's an inappropriate translation. In Greek, it's simply de, and if you know Greek, de is just a very general kind of connective transition word. It's not a hard contrast. So to use an English word that communicates a hard contrast, I think is inappropriate. And second of all, nevertheless in verse 16 is followed up with the word knowing, a participle. So really what we have is de plus a participle, and knowing probably has the sense of because, because we know. And so I think the better way to translate the first little bit of verse 16 there is, And, not nevertheless, but just, we're Jews by nature, not Gentile sinners. And because we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is basing what he's about to say on this idea that Peter agrees with him. That that we're not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Paul knows Peter believes that. They've had enough conversations at the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15. Peter actually says this very thing. We know that we're not justified by the law, right? So Peter knows this, and that's kind of the force of this. So verse 16 best reads, And because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, and the works of the law is the Old Testament law, the Torah. So a man's not going to be justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Justified means declared right. It means to be put into a right relationship with. One of the major ways the Greek word was used in the ancient world was in a legal context to communicate a favorable verdict by a judge. And so uh, it has this idea of being declared in the right. And in 
theological context, that also includes being declared in the right and thus becoming part of God's people, being put into a right relationship with God and thus being given admittance to his people. So we know that that's not going to happen by keeping the Torah. And in fact, it's fair to say that when Paul says that, he's stating something that not only Peter knew, that most of the Jews knew as well, that the Torah wasn't working for them. Now, the Torah had brought a curse, and we'll see more of that in chapter 3, so hold on to that. So, And because we know that a man is not justified, put into a right relationship with God by works of the Old Testament law, but through faith in Jesus, even we have believed in Jesus, Paul says to Peter. Uh, even we, you and me, Peter, we Jews, we've believed in Jesus because we know we needed to be justified. We knew that the law wasn't going to do it, and so we put our faith in Jesus to be justified. So even we believed in Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. That last line there, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified, alludes to several Old Testament texts. For example, it alludes to Psalm 143.2 and others like that, where even in the Old Testament there were these hints that the law itself was not the thing that justified you. And so what Paul is saying in answer to his rhetorical question to Peter is, Peter, just think about it. You know, I know, all us Jews know that we are not declared right, put into a right relationship with God by virtue of the Torah. The Torah didn't achieve that. Um, the Torah, we failed as a people to keep. It sent us away into exile. We've returned back to our land, but God has not returned to the temple. More on that in future sessions. Uh, and thus, we know we are not going to be justified by the works of the Old Testament law. So we believed in Jesus so that we could be justified by faith. All right? That's an initial summary of what Paul says to Peter. Now, verse 17, he goes on and he asks a second question. This is what he asks. He says, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? Let's make sure we understand the question, and some of what the question is about is clarified by the answer, but first let's just make sure we hear what the question is saying. What, Peter, what Paul is saying to Peter, and by extension to all of us who are listening in, he says, now if while seeking to be justified in Christ, which he just said that's what we did, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Been found how? Been found where? There is some debate among scholars on that. Some have suggested something along the lines of been viewed as sinners in the eyes of the Judaizers because, you know, now we can eat with Gentiles and all of that. But that doesn't really sound what, like what Paul means, and it doesn't do justice to the things he says in answer to it. Probably the better understanding of being found sinners has to do with uh, being found sinners before God. In other words, what Paul is saying is, when we sought to be justified by faith in Jesus, we ourselves admitted that we were sinners. We showed ourselves to be sinners. We, we were found in the presence of God that we too needed forgiveness. We needed justification. We Jews were not all we were cracked up to be, even though sometimes we like to act like it. I think that's what he means. So he says, but if, while we were seeking to be justified in Christ... We showed ourselves to be sinners. We acknowledged before God that we were sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? Which 
means, is Christ in league with sin? Is Christ a servant of sin? Does Christ, since it's sinners who are justified, we Jews are acknowledging we're sinners by seeking to be justified in him, is Christ like a servant of, a minister of, a, an assistant to sin? Paul's answer is, may it never be. Why not? He explains why not in verses 18 and 19. It's a little theologically dense. There's a lot of things in here that Paul has in his mind that he doesn't explicitly say that kind of lie behind his words, and so it's hard for us to maybe grasp everything, but let's try to do the best we can. Verse 18 says, when he says, may it never be for, explaining, right, for gives an explanation, so for, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. All right, let's try to clarify what Paul means by some of this. When he says, for if I rebuild what I once have destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. In one, at one level, this is, I think, kind of a general principle that Paul is applying to this situation. In other words, if I tear something down and then realize, oh, that was a mistake and I have to rebuild it. I admit that I made a mistake. I show myself, I demonstrate that I made a mistake. I'm a transgressor. As a general principle in life, this is just the way it works. If I if I destroy something, tear something down, oh man, that oh man, that wasn't right, and then I put it back in place, I rebuild it, I put it back into operation, I acknowledge that I'm a transgressor. So I think at one level, verse 18 is sort of a general principle that he's applying to this specific situation. Now, at a specific level, what is Peter torn down that he's having to rebuild? Well, he tore down the Old Testament food standards and the Old Testament boundary markers to some degree by eating with the Gentiles. So Peter could live with the Gentiles, act like a Gentile. As Paul says just a few sentences above, he could live like the Gentiles. So Peter had torn down some of the Old Testament law concerning cleanliness and who you could eat with and food laws and all that. So Peter tore down the law and then all of a sudden these men from James showed up and he rebuilds those very standards. So who's the transgressor in the house? It's not Paul. It's not the Gentiles. It's Peter. Peter's showing that he made a mistake by rebuilding this. Now, Paul's point is the one who's having the problem here is Peter. He's torn things down. Now he's rebuilt the, the, the standards. So were you right in tearing it down, Peter, or were you wrong? Were you right in rebuilding it, Peter, or were you wrong? Where did you transgress? But in some way, Peter, you're a transgressor. That seems to be the force of and the implication of verse 18. Now, verse 19 adds a further explanation to that. And Paul says, for, again, explanation, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is a very theologically dense statement, and behind it really lies so much of Paul's thinking about the Old Testament law. And we don't have time here to go into massive detail, but let me just hit a few highlights so that we can understand this. Uh, I think a more thoroughgoing treatment is given in Romans chapter 7, where you can actually hear a more expanded view of what Paul means by through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Paul writes, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Notice that phrase is very similar to what Paul says there in Galatians chapter 2. So you were made to die to the law 
through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. That sort of helps us see what Paul thinks about the law. What we learn when we read Romans 7, and even a little later in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 kind of clarifies some of these words as well. What we learn is that Paul realized the law was unable to give life. And therefore, it brought death and condemnation, not because of a flaw in the law per se, but because of a flaw in our human nature. We were in the flesh. We did not have a new life flowing in us, and thus we were not capable of keeping or obeying the Old Testament law. And so the law was unable to give life, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, and therefore we needed to die to the law so that we could actually bear fruit for God, as he says in Romans chapter 7. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God or for God. So through the law, meaning by trying to keep the law, trying to obey the law, really through the whole story of the law, I died to the law. That the The law itself brought me to a point where my relationship with the law needed to end. Why is that? Well, because the law promised blessings for keeping the law and curses for obeying the law. Our history as Jews, read the Old Testament, we failed to keep the law, and thus as a people we suffered the curses. And not only that, individually I myself have struggled to keep the law and failed to keep the law, and so I'm under that same curse as well. And so... If I am actually going to bear fruit for God, I need to be free from the curse, as Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3. And so the law brought me to a point where my relationship with the law needed to end, and I needed to put my faith in Jesus Christ so that I might actually live for God. That's Paul's understanding of the law. One of the things that I think is really, really important that you hear out of that is Paul did not believe that the law was bad. In Romans 7, Paul says, uh, is the law sin? No, he says, the law is holy and righteous and good. Paul believed that the law was a good thing, a holy thing. The law wasn't bad. And oftentimes in our popular conservative Christian thinking, we run down the law. We make the law out to be a bad thing. Oh, the law is just a bunch of rules and rituals that we can never keep anyhow. So God sent Jesus to set us free from it. Oh, the law is, you know, all those rules and all those rules and rules and rules and rules. And we weren't made for all those rules, so we could never live the law. And we run down the law. Paul never did that. So when he says, through the law, I died to the law, it's not because the law is bad. It's because we are bad. It's not because there's a flaw in the law. It's because there's a flaw in us. We were incapable of keeping the law, and the law was incapable of changing our nature. But the law still pointed out God's ways. The law still pointed out things that were important to God and God's values and priorities and all of that. And so the law was holy and righteous and good, Paul says in Romans 7. It wasn't a bad thing. It was just we were incapable of keeping it because of our fallenness and our brokenness, and the law did not have the power to change that. And so Paul says that we needed to die to the law so that we could actually live for God. And the net effect, Paul will say in Galatians 5, is now by the Spirit, we actually become the kind of person the law always dreamed of. It just wasn't capable of making us because we were so fallen and so broken. And so through the law, I died to the law 
so that we, we might live for God. So, Peter, in context, it was the law itself that led us to tear down the law. You know that. I know that. So why in the world are you rebuilding the law by effectively forcing the Gentiles to become law keepers like we Jews used to be, but now we've torn that down so that we could actually live for Christ. That's the force of this in context. With that then, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, probably one of the more well-known lines out of Galatians, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is what it means to have died to the law. This is what it means to live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so when Paul died to the law, that death to the law occurred by being crucified with Christ. And so now his identity is wrapped up with Jesus, not with the law. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is the difference. I am no longer driven by the Torah. I am driven by Messiah. And the life I live in the flesh, he goes on, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so verse 20 summarizes the new operating principle for the people of God now. Not trying to keep the law right and not the Torah, but faith in the Son of God is the operating principle. Again, that's not because the law is bad. It's because we've moved on to a new phase In salvation history, we've moved to a new point in time. Messiah has come, and so now we are no longer under the Torah as a covenant. We're under Messiah as a covenant. And so Paul says, that has led me to no longer need to keep the law as my operating principle. My operating principle is faith in the Son of God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. How does that happen? Well, it happens by living by faith in dynamic relational union with God's Son, Jesus himself, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I love this personal statement of Paul. We hear a little bit of the the heart of Paul's spirituality here in that phrase. This is when he thinks of Jesus and, and his living with Jesus and for Jesus. This is what comes to Paul's mind. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Verse 21, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, meaning right standing with God, uh, right living for God, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul will expand on that in chapter 3, but in short, what he says, he says here is that if the law was actually able to produce righteousness, to produce the kind of life that the law desired and God intended, if the law was enabled to free us from the curse and, and put us in a right standing with God, if the law was the thing that uh, characterized the people of God's life, then there was no point in Jesus' death. And so Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God, and I don't nullify the grace of God. And that's really hard words for Peter to hear. It's, I'm sure it brought Peter up short to think, man, by reinstating the law and requiring the Gentiles to become Jews, I'm in effect, according to what Paul says here, I'm in effect saying, Christ died pointlessly. There was no point for it. I don't need the grace of God in my life. And that's the force of Paul's words in the immediate situation in which they're spoken. Now, Paul's going to take all of this theology in verses 
14 through 21. And he's going to unpack that in greater detail in Galatians 3, 4, and 5. And so if you feel like, man, there's a lot in there, and I don't know exactly what it all means, we'll have plenty of opportunity to think it through more fully and to unpack it in more detail in the ensuing paragraph. So just hang with us on that. But this paragraph is in a lot of ways like the, the dense theological heart of the letter that will be then laid out more fully and more completely in the paragraphs to come. With that, let's just pause and step back and reflect on this whole little snapshot and really where we're at in the letter so that we understand the flow of thought and we see some of the theological implications for us. Paul has given three snapshots from his life. He's done so in such a way that he's really defending the gospel uh, and showing that his gospel is independent of Jerusalem and yet has authority even over Jerusalem and was supported in the middle snapshot and was supported by the Jerusalem leadership itself. And so his gospel is uh, verified and validated and authoritative. And that's important because the, the Gentiles in the Galatian church are being told by these Judaizers that, they, that it's not that, that his gospel is wrong, what he taught them was in error and all that. And Paul's like, no, they're wrong, I'm not. That's really, really important. And so that's the overall flow of thought that we've come to at this point in Galatians. And this snapshot that we just finished looking at has some really powerful implications for us. It reminds us that the gospel is intending to not just connect us in a right relationship with God, but it puts us into a right relationship with each other, that the gospel creates one new family composed of Jews and Gentiles alike. In other words, the gospel creates one new family from the the vast array of different kinds of people on planet Earth. And so uh, in Christ, we are one. And that requires us to work for that and to labor for that and to struggle for that. And at times, like Paul, to fight for that, that we have to learn how to live out this implication of the gospel that is creating one new family of God in the Messiah. And that should lead us to live together, to eat dinner together with people who are very different from us, people of different backgrounds, people of different races, people of different traditions, people of different cultures, all being knit together into one new family in the Messiah. That's what this little snapshot tells us. That's what Paul is really fighting for. And so we should really just push pause and just think about our churches. Think about the other churches in our area. Think about the practical ways we could cooperate and work together. Think about eating with Christians who are different from you, with different backgrounds, different cultures, eat different foods, and like different things who we may not fully understand. We're going to have to work for that, and we're going to have to struggle for that, but that's a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. The gospel should lead us to eat dinner with people who are different from us and who have come to faith in Jesus and say, we're all one family and we're going to need to learn how to get along with one another in Christ. The dominant principle of this snapshot really is this, is that the gospel of grace undermines socializing by race or by social status or by um, religious heritage or background, that the gospel of grace undermines socializing on race and status and nationality and background and uh, all of that, that the gospel of grace intends to bring God's people together in the Messiah as one new family. And so 
we should see immense variety among God's people, and we should find ways to partner with them, socialize with them, fellowship with them in Christ, because the gospel intends to make one new family in the Messiah. Hey, it's John. Thanks for checking out this session of the Listener's Commentary. I pray it's super helpful to your understanding of the Bible and your ability to follow Jesus. What many people don't know is that the Listener's Commentary is an entirely crowdfunded project, which means it's made possible by the generosity of supporters just like you. And so thank you to every one of you who supports the project. And if you want to help support this project so that it can continue to grow and expand and I can continue to produce these commentaries, just swing on over to the listenerscommentary.com, click give, and you can support right through there. Thanks so much.